Welcome, everyone, to the Luke Cage podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me as always is Pete. Hello, Pete. This place right here is Switzerland. Everybody knows that. The Luke Cage podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 102, Code of the Streets, comes to you courtesy of the Carnell Stokes Elevator Company. Call him Cottonmouth, and the only direction you're going is down. Pete, before we kick things off here with this episode, quick programming note, a couple of them with no Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. this week. You, dear listener, can expect more Luke Cage episodes this Wednesday and this Friday and the following Monday. So looking forward to uh, to digging deep in there. And Pete, in an episode that we're going to be discussing shortly where Turk Barrett says he's going back to Hell's Kitchen, so are we for New York Comic Con this upcoming weekend. Who, who amongst you out there are we going to see there? We cannot wait to uh, to see friends old and new alike at New York Comic Con. And you can bet that we will be at the Luke Cage panel for sure. So come on up to your pals from Fantastic Geek and uh, wish us a hearty, sweet Christmas. The Lowdown, where we review what's going on in the episode. Pete, where are we starting? Our teaser here, a hooded Luke with a gun to his head, Matt. And there's a younger gentleman behind him who wants to know what he's doing there. Um, but Luke explains to the young man who's just called him a racial epithet. A little bit more on that later in our Word on the Street segment. Um, tells him that he's had a long day. He's tired but he's never tired enough to allow anyone to call him that word. And as they stand across the street for, from a building named for one of their greatest heroes, um, the young man tells him he's about to be a dead black man. Cut to the title card. Certainly a, a, a shocking start. I have to admit, Pete, I... I, I, in this teaser act, I was like, wait, did I click on the wrong episode? What's going on? It feels like we're in the middle of the story. Super, super effective because, of course, we're going to we're gonna swing back to it at the end. And uh, a great way to kick things off after the title card. Matt, I read it a little differently. He's got the hood up that he came right after uh, defending Genghis Khanis here. So come to find within the course of this episode, a little bit of a different situation. It certainly, uh, it certainly could play that way. Maybe it was meant to play that way. Uh, I appreciate the fact, though, that it, it, it kind of hangs out there slightly, uh, slightly disjointed. And of course, uh, we uh, we get the explanation later on in the episode. But uh, after the title card, Pete, we have the still unnamed female detective standing at the scene of the crime, observing it. It's an effect, uh, effect-driven, out-of-body experience clearly meant to show that her mind is working as she breaks this scene apart. It's a little bit of extra storytelling flourish, camera flourish, that uh, I really appreciated to really tell us that this isn't just a, uh, this isn't a meat and potatoes kind of detective. She she is invested in the scene, invested in the investigation. And the fluorescent light bulb noise kind of brings us back as uh, her partner there, Detective Scarf, 
tells her she's doing it again, staring at photos. And uh, these are talking and moving now. Uh, he calls her Horton. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, her bet is that babyface Chico is the one who got scared. And of course, we... Uh, of course, we know that that is the case, so it's another kind of uh, check mark next to her name in terms of uh, the, the quality of her investigation. The story moves on now to Pop's Barbershop, and Pete, Luke has never been that into Donald Goins, and with that, there's just a, a litany of, of writers and thinkers mentioned. Yeah, if it's not the urban fiction of African-American uh, writer Donald Goins who Pop refers to as a street poet, then it's uh, a Walter Mosley or even a Caucasian like a George Pelicanos here, uh, detective novelist Richard Price, uh, who he digs as well, the the screenwriter. Um, and then even uh, Dennis Lehane, who uh, authored Mystic River. Um, but uh, Chester Hines, you know, he, he wrote about Harlem detectives as well. And Luke's biggest beef, however, with Goins is that he wrote about criminals and died like one with Pop admonishing him to not get all Fox News about it. Oof. Pete, I'm starting to get the sense that maybe this show is about a little bit more than a you know, guy in leotard saving uh, kittens out of trees or whatever. All of this, though, builds to the need for a man to stand up and help his neighborhood. Uh, which you know is going through Luke Cage's mind. And, you know, it's just like that mystery man who took out three guys at Genghis Khani's last night. Although Luke heard maybe it was even four. And it's just a it's a great moment there of of they're having the the one discussion. They both know that they're having the deeper discussion. And we're picking up uh, right from where things left off last time. All this while Luke is reading uh, Walter Mosley's little green and using Mariah Dillard's new Harlem Renaissance green initiative flyer as a bookmark. Certainly, <laughs> certainly, uh, Pete, is there anything, is there anything, uh, less, I don't want to say useful, but is there anything less dismissive than, than the mere bookmark, you know, it, here it has other things to say instead. No, it just, it just holds your place and helps you, helps you get back to where you want to be. But um, the the way that uh, Luke came in to Pop's barbershop there, he figured that uh, something was up or maybe somebody had given him some love. Ooh, that one, he didn't say love. That one's going to cost him. He fills up the swear jar there, that mysterious swear jar. We're going to talk about a little bit later as well. There's also discussion when uh, Pops asks Luke uh, where he's from. Not Chicago, not really. Luke says he's from Savannah, Georgia. And, and Pops describes that feel right before a thunderstorm where there's electricity in the air. That's Harlem right now, prepped to explode. And uh, some really evocative, lovely, lovely writing here. Not just kind of, of course, setting the table for the episode. Not just uh, summarizing where things are at. But just said in such a, such a poetic way. Yeah, Pop is really the sage here. He's explaining the connection of uh, Mariah Dillard and Cottonmouth. They are cousins. Their grandma was Mama Mabel. Who's that? That's the devil's ex-wife, Matt. Um, 
So with this place being Switzerland, this place, of course, being Pop's Barbershop, um, Pop gets at uh, the source of uh, where Luke is from here. Uh, he says, of course, first Chicago, but really he's from Savannah, Georgia. And uh, with everything prepped to blow like this, Matt, in step Shades, Mr. Stokes, and Tone um, for a little shave. Indeed. And uh, in just a... a a scene filled with such uh, such electricity. Cottonmouth says that he wants the razor. Clippers are idiot-proof, and a good razor shave is like a vacation for Mr. Stokes. Um, and, and, I mean, you add to it this whole notion that, I mean, who would they, who nowadays gets gets shaved with a, with a straight razor? Uh, Hipsters. Well, uh, you know, I was going to say, probably, there's probably artisanal, uh, artisanal, straight razor shops in yep. in Brooklyn no doubt where they they hand make the uh hand make the the shaving cream and whatnot Pete quick digression my late great great uncle uh during World War II got a, got the best shave of his life uh while he was uh visiting uh, Italy with the with the English army and a nice Italian man shaved him and uh my, my great great uncle kept the kept the pistol underneath the uh underneath the, the the cloth just in case just in case a, a fight happened and it was the best shave of his life that's the kind of shave the cotton mouth is looking for here and uh it, again just this power of letting somebody take a take a blade to your throat but but that's what he wants and it's also when pops notices that uh that stokes's hands are all cut up it's from shaving you see yeah all this while um Shades is sitting in the other chair and Luke is trying very much not to be remembered from uh, their time together. But speaking of time, Matt, uh, you know, the lost attention to detail that youngsters are missing these days and uh, how precious time is. It shouldn't be wasted. Boy, that wasn't uh, um, an ominous line in the context of this episode. These youngsters want it all, but they don't want to put in the work. And uh, with the cuts on the hands there, which happened shaving, Luke mentally notes 12 feet, two guns, four seconds. And even with Turk Barrett over there playing chess, it's going to be a stretch for Luke to get this done and not have there be any kind of collateral damage and pete it's not just turk barrett monster flapper there's also bobby fish played by by the incredible ron cephas jones uh presently in uh in this is us and uh formerly part of uh mr robot and uh just uh, he has a presence to him and all he does in this episode is play a little chess but but pete he's he's got he's got the He's got the beard there with no mustache. He's like a like a chess playing wizard. And all this tension is enough to break a broom, a cheap broom. Indeed, and that's noticed by Shades, uh, who says that he just got out of Seagate, a uh, three year stretch, and he remembers a, a Puerto Rican kid. Was it Rico? No, nah, it was Chico. He, he used to shape up Shades, you know. And Shades is wondering if he's still around. So a, a real sense, Pete, here beyond the. 
the story under the story that we the audience can understand which is they're looking for chico because of the money and, and the shooting and so forth there's a real sense here of uh, of this being a community with memory yeah and there's a real sense of tension luke even offers with these dirty towels he can take them out for pop no sweat did but, you think uh, did you think that was a little over the top no, I loved it. I loved, particularly with the soundtrack. Uh, you know, there's the there's the flourish and the kind of posing that goes on when uh, when these bad guys enter uh, Switzerland here, and for that to come around so deliciously there. I I mean, Matt, I've I've long said that uh, Daredevil is probably my favorite Marvel TV show. It's in serious jeopardy right now. There certainly is a sense of of energy to this show that the other shows have not. The other shows have been a little bit more um, dour, and, and, and this this less so. Uh, and to be fair, I mean the other shows had different uh, have had different uh, crosses to bear, if you will. But uh, regardless, speaking of crosses, Matt. Ooh, bring it on. Pete, Pete, tell me, let's talk the Bible here. Old Testament. Yes. Uh, Luke, biblical name, of course, and uh, Cornell Stokes, he considers himself old school, you know, once he notes, of course, that this man who works for him and works for Pop has more jobs than a Jamaican. Um, also, you know, laments the loss of the old ways, like the Bible. No begging, no pleading eye for an eye and it's pops you know the the real current of sympathy who points out that you know well what about turning the other cheek as he's shaving this man um and it didn't even look like the shave is done before by the way that he's he's standing up looked like he had a lot left on his uh his neck and the bottom of his chin um but uh that this chico here you know, he he doesn't deserve that kind of uh, sympathy that, uh, you know, Jesus forgives. Cottonmouth Stokes does not. Well, regarding the shave, I think just as later in the episode, it will be unquestionable that uh, during the, the, the sadness towards the end of the episode that, uh, that Stokes was in the club in the VIP booth the entire time. Same thing here. He doesn't, he doesn't necessarily need a shave, but no one can question that he came in, got a shave, checked in with the, you know, with the neighborhood barber uh shades was able to you know ask about his childhood uh his childhood barber you know like it, it's all you could swear in a stack of bibles they were just there you know they were just there to, to check in to say hello to to frequent a uh a neighborhood business the fact that his shave isn't done and the fact that he didn't necessarily need to shave that's secondary to the uh to the the the, the excuse for being there and it certainly works that in the cover story that later on he'll go back for a haircut and uh, scoop up the money that Chico has absconded with. But uh, tension averted, or so it seems for a moment, until Luke has to remind Stokes that unless his name is Corleone or a couple others there, Shaft, he needs to pony up the $25 
which Tone then essentially throws at Henry Pops Hunter. It it really has the sense here that Luke is kicking at the hornet's nest. Uh, there's no question that uh, that Stokes is powerful enough, A, to not pay, and B, I think Pops, and indeed everyone in that, in that room, but Pops... Uh, chief among them knows that he's not there for for the shave so the fact that pops takes a little time to remove a little excess hair from his uh from his cheeks that's not the point the point is they're checking in on chico and they're checking in on switzerland here um nonetheless with them gone pop says that uh, stokes's knuckles all battered and ripped up as they are it's proof that shamik is done but there still is time for chico Pete, let's set the set the Chico timer now because that definitely is uh, uh, even upon first viewing. That's the uh, the conflict for the episode. What what is Chico's fate? But Luke used to find people. Uh, Pops wants to set up a parley with Cottonmouth and reminds Luke that he hadn't seen Reva since she was five. But she comes home with a convict husband and a shaky story, and he didn't ask questions. And later, that same well-read ex-con comes back after her murder and wants to be paid only in cash. He just nodded. So he's been keeping Luke's secrets, and he's owed here. And uh, the bill is due. It's time to collect. And with that, Matt, we're going to go down to the St. Nick Playground Courts. Indeed, there's uh, there's an intense game going on, and it's interrupted by uh, Scarf and Misty. Uh, Chauncey is challenged to play horse. Uh, if he wins, he gets a get out of jail free card for any nonviolent offense. And if Misty wins, she gets info on Chico. And uh, the first shot she takes, she nails. She nails in camera, no edit, no trick shot, just from her ball up, ball through the hoop. Uh, it's followed by some more shots of her sinking the rock to show that it's for real. Simone uh, Missick in heels, no less, Matt. It's it it, it is an epic moment, telling us that uh, that uh, the hero for hire might have his name on the TV show, but uh, this uh, this heroine is uh, is certainly here not to fool around at all. Girl can ball, and next to the CD initials of uh, Chico. Diaz, of course, there's the MK later revealed as Mercedes Knight. It's her court too, baby. Meanwhile, Luke is beating the street in a montage of him asking people about Chico. Um, the montage went on for quite some time to show that he was really asking a lot of people. Um, he sees Stokes going in somewhere. Hey, that's Mariah's office. And uh, the story then moves into her office where she dresses uh, Stokes down and underlines the episodic need for her coffers to be refilled right away. She also repeats something that I thought didn't necessarily need to be repeated. But you know what? We, we need to make things clear to the audience in general here. The money that was used to refurbish uh, Stokes Club, that was mo the money from her uh, from her political end of things. So... Uh, she says that she'll be on him until it's resolved. And by the way, she called Shades a guard dog, which is just a great way to work Shades <laughs> into the scene. Asked if uh, wanted some water for the guard dog there. But uh, barred against those donations for the club, he made a gun deal with Domingo. 
And uh, he points out how it is Mariah's job to turn his water into wine. But hey, Matt, family first, always, because like that never got in the way of anything and won't buy an episode. It It's an interesting scene in part because to me, it kind of serves the function of, of, um, we know, uh, uh, we know broadcast shows will have previously on, but then oftentimes also in the course of the narrative, it'll be like, Oh man, can you believe that the volcano just exploded at the end of last week's episode? We are all in triage here at the Gray's Anatomy Hospital. Th- there'll be dialogue like that, and that's kind of the purpose here, but isn't part of the reason it's Netflix so that we don't need to have scenes like that? Because previously on could have been, you know, 16 minutes ago, and we're 15 minutes into this episode, so... Again, on the one hand, I, I understand the need to really make sure that the money is driving this story and that there's a debt that needs to be paid and it needs to be paid right away or both of them go to jail along with a whole slew of lieutenants. But it was essentially just a, sh- a scene to say, last time on Luke Cage, money was taken. More money was taken. Money must be returned. I didn't find it that cumbersome. And I think... Yeah, I mean, we're watching it in the binge model, but had you taken a week off, had you taken a year off, it would refresh you there. Mariah tells him that uh, she's coming by the club again tonight. Uh, Even though she can't be spotted with uh, 'er ne'er-do-wells like this, she likes the music. And from there, Matt, Luke Cage kicks down a door and finds Chico and a backpack full of cash. And when he kicks down a door, it's the door comes off the frame and gets kicked down. That was a nice, cheap, you know, I'm sure it's a balsa wood door and on, you know, hinges that a, a, a mere mortal can kick off. But it, it, it just sells it for the moment. It sells, it sells the, the fiction of these superpowers here. And uh, he says that he is there to help Chico. Pop wanted to keep an eye out for Chico what on account of his dad, which is something that gets uh, returned to later. Um Pete, Chico's declining the help. Yeah, even though it took Luke four hours for free to find him, um, he points out that the only chance he has for survival is to come with Luke now. Uh, But he says to tell Pops he's sorry. And uh, we're back inside the barbershop. And Turk's Rook just got taken, rookie. By Bobby Fish. It's Ron Cephas Jones again. Pete, I hope he's back after this episode. What with, well, what with, with what with is going to happen? We'll get there. We can get there. But Pete, outside, let's just take a deep breath. Yeah, there's, there's this, there's all this drama going on. There's, there's the, uh, the return of Turk Barrett here. I'm excited about Ron Cephas Jones, but outside, <sighs> Pop, he's digging into that catfish sandwich. Plenty of hot sauce. Great line here. That there's that reminder that a fork will kill you faster than any bullet. Ain't that the case sometimes? Chico is not coming. And it's at this point that we get the backstory here. Uh, Pops was no angel himself. He was a beast. And in an awesomely dated flashback, um, we get to see here 
that uh, he's not called Pops because he's OG, Matt, original gangsta. Uh, but it was the sound created when he struck people, as in snap, crackle. Cottonmouth had lost three teeth as a kid, and Wilfredo, that would be Chico's father, saw him smile, and the name just stuck. So with Fredo as the craziest Puerto Rican in Harlem and Cottonmouth in tow as well, whom Pop referred to as Thing 1 and Thing 2, <laughs> the, the, the picture here of them posing, the cat in the hat, of course, in the middle, being Henry Pop Hunter. It's such a fun flashback. They have the film, the the film grain to it, um, the music to it. It's just if you have to do a flashback, that's the way to do it. Add a little style there, and it's all tied together by Pop's masterful voiceover that's backed up by his present day in person narration. He's casual and mournful as he talks about his having gone to prison for ten years, his woman pregnant. Uh, his son clearly born while he was away in prison, and he hasn't seen his son since age 13. He had no skills, but he opened up this shop so those young knuckleheads would have a place to get away. Something that we've heard before, but here, Pete, the repetition, it's worth it in this, uh, in this great presentation. Yeah, and Wilfredo's father having gone from selling crack to smoking it, and obviously his demise, um, Pop going to jail taking the fall and having this shared history, not concurrent, but certainly the story is familiar with Luke, who he refers to as Shawshank. Of course, he didn't do it, but he's, you know, not as innocent as he seems. Um, but Luke points out the tremendous peace he's felt since uh, what he did at Genghis Khani's He's done running, he says. And before you know it, Chico is in the back of the barbershop. While all of this is going on, Pete, Luke makes mention that he feels like he's at peace for the first time. He's ready to find out who he really is, uh, which, of course, is an evolution that we can, uh, that we can expect. Um, but with Chico in the back there, wonderful look on Chico's face. He's ready to get whooped by Pops who clearly it, it's been said before, but now you see the look on, uh, on the face of Chico that pops is the neighborhood father. And it's just a touching scene as it unfolds. It really is. And credit Frankie face on here, the, the way that he grabs him, what were you thinking and calls him dummy and then hugs him. It's, it's that tough love. Somebody who's only been through this can, uh, lavish on somebody who's going through it at the time. So, you know, I, I think mentally this is this is the swan song of the episode. I don't think we're surprised when um, when Pop gets hit in the uh, the neck and and dies later on in the episode after getting a moment like this. It's it's a powerful display of paternalism, and we're we're right in the middle of the moment. Until it's all interrupted by Turk Monday Fridaying Barrett seeing what he shouldn't see, and it, it, it's at that moment that it's like it's like they were there, they were right there. It was going to be okay, and Turk Barrett's going to mess it up somehow. 
That Rob Morgan, let me tell you, my face lit up when I saw him at that chess table in this episode. And there's just something he brings uh, to this Marvel TV universe. We're going to talk a little bit more about him in our, uh, our theory segment. Also, if there wasn't enough tension already going on, Turk Barrett wanders on out uh, of the shop, kind of shoot out. He runs into uh, to Misty, and he says he's just uptown to play a little chess. And right when we think that it's all a bit of a ruse, that he's going to spill to the fuzz, Misty starts lecturing him, telling himself to get back downtown. Pete, she's trying to send him back to Hell's Kitchen and those other shows. Yeah, uh, I like the idea of a history between them. Um, and almost a little bit of, uh, you know, the fun time tension. Really? I, I hadn't read it like that. I just kind of read it as, as, uh, you know, night has, uh, right. Night has been on the, the path of righteousness for a long time. Knows, uh, knows the Turk isn't. And she's just kind of saying, this is my neighborhood. Get out. And Turk has probably been on night. <laughs> wow uh coincidentally knight and scarf by the way scarf's name is good how it's spelled s-c-a-r-f-e i believe that's from the comics i'm 99 percent sure it's just it's just awesome somehow it's it's somehow it's bad um which is a topic we'll return to in a little bit but knight and scarf are just checking in on chico's job it, it, it is absolutely routine we the audience know that but it sure looks like they've followed chico down looks that way to, to pops and luke and um another touching scene here misty knows pops from way back and uh well she's not misty to him she's mercedes knight all the way back to uh when uh kelly who we don't know at least in the point in this episode is uh was real proud but still mad that she chose temple over the local basketball power saint john's another highlight in this scene is how the 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 by the books uh detective scarf refuses to shake pop's hand Pete kind of got to be on in Scarf's corner on this one. He's he's there to kind of do the job, not to not to glad hand with people he knows from his past. Uh, again, a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a cold fish, but we're, I think that we're meant to dislike Scarf more than we have proof for. Clearly, well, they ask here: Has Pop heard about the shooting at the junkyard by the river? Uh, not really. Of course, we know everything there is to know here. And uh, they take us through the sad story that Dante Chapman was found dead, that Shamik Smith has now been found as well. And the last person to see either of them was uh, our man Chico here inside a strip club. And uh, it's at this point that Luke Cage meets um, or gets to know detective misty knight for the first time because she's got better clothes to audit in pete we the audience are in the know as to their uh, their past from the previous episode and after a couple of uh glances between luke and pops pops is in the know i love that scarf is so so wrapped up in the 
the by the numbers investigation he's looking at the the magazine clipping hanging on the wall to further prove that uh that uh you know chico was a presence here and there were connections to uh dante and shamik etc 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 that he's missing the fact that there's a completely different conversation going on behind him with the other three people there i'd want to take a moment here to really uh, tip my hat to the great casting of frank whaley he 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 looks like a believable detective who knows if you do your competent detective stuff most of the time you get what you need to get um but also somebody who's not a hundred percent 110 percent invested in in his job and the community and the greater good he's just a guy checking boxes trying to catch bad guys and you know we've pointed out uh fantastic geek having you know had its its real start with the Alcatraz podcast that Whaley was on that show as well in addition to uh Shades Theo Rossi so a, a couple of alums of a of a show we have a real soft spot for in addition to you know quite a bit on Whaley's resume but I I really appreciate kind of how if they're not uh making him up in a kind of weathered way He's he's just gotten there uh, in the course of his career here. Frank Whaley is somebody who I think never quite exploded to that top level the way you thought he would have. Uh, I referenced last episode he's in a, a a great little scene movie called Swimming with Sharks, which is like this Hollywood insider uh, movie that stars uh, that stars nominally whaley as the main character but i believe kevin spacey uh kind of a pre-oscar kevin spacey gets top billing again he's with kevin spacey it's this great dramatic movie it's a hollywood insider movie didn't quite didn't quite explode he gets a gun exploded on him in uh in pulp fiction and is remembered for that but you don't sit and go oh that's the guy from pulp fiction um Pete, I look forward to to many, many more episodes with uh, with uh, Detective Scarf here. At any rate, Pete, the scene concludes with Pops saying to to Luke that he does not want to see Wilfredo's son die on these streets too, as Wilfredo did. And Luke is being asked to help again. Pete, how is Luke going to help this time? Well, you don't do this over the phone. And since he already works at Harlem's Paradise, he's going to go... And have the conversation here. And just like that, he's working his way through the kitchen. Uh, his boss here, Nate, tells him he's late, but he has his money. Cage! Cage! But he ain't listening in one-track mind. Mariah Dillard is up there in the balcony. She's just received the Blue Hawaiian. Ain't nobody going to get up on her for a Blue Hawaiian. And suddenly, Tone is patting down Luke, who has news about Pop wanting to parlay for chico the that message is delivered the idea that the merchandise is going to be returned and chico will be gone forever and pete i absolutely loved that concurrent to this tone receives a text and it's shown on screen in real time i know other shows have done it sherlock uh is probably the most uh prominent as kind of a beginning point uh, although I saw some video online a while ago that said, no, they've shown text messages in that fashion for a while. But whether it's House of Cards, uh, Sherlock, other shows, it's such a vivid and vibrant way to show a text unfolding real time. Pete, this was the first time I saw uh, autocorrect 
as as the text yeah. is being written um which again it just you know that what you're seeing is not real because texts don't pop up from the phone where a third you know where a camera can see it kind of thing but the the intent of it was so realistic and so in the moment that it felt it felt almost kind of documentarian even though it was kind of in, in this fanciful uh effects kind of way just absolutely wonderful all coming to show. soon coming soon matt with with ios 10 on uh tv they will have emojis so you know that'll that'll pop up there too but hey um cottonmouth he don't speak chinese matt he doesn't and i love his proud indignance here he's not willing to play ball on any of this uh, almost kind of a little huffy here, but he's reminded that there's a neighborhood history that has to be respected, and that that gets him uh, that gets him on board. He'll accept the parlay. Oh, and by the way, Cage is fired, but he actually quit instead. So <laughs> love that too, which he which he loved. Um, and it's at this point that uh, Tone tells uh, Cottonmouth he's got eyes on the boy on Chico. Um, but Stokes tells him to let it go, take care of it in the morning. Having been touched here by Pops via Luke, that uh, if he's out on the street slipping, he can take care of it. But otherwise, he's to let it go. And it's um, Mariah here, Alfrey Woodard, who, who brings up that um, Cornell is wasting his gifts. Uh, meanwhile, Turk... Uh, meets up with Tone. Of course, we were going to figure that he was the informant here. He says that the boy is at Pops, but he wants to know, as Shades and Tone speed away, where's Turk's money? This scene here is partially intercut with uh, Mariah chiding Stokes over playing gangster, uh, which we'll discuss in a minute. But what I find interesting is then... That gets intercut with Shades and Tone having a discussion in the car, clarifying that they're going to wait for Chico to come out. I know that we kind of we kind of had a bit of a laugh last episode about uh, the Marvel TV intercutting style. There's like three different. It's not three different scenes at the same time, but it's like scenes one and two, and then scenes two and three. I don't recall having seen that before, but you're leaving out the B, the the A being what's taken place in the club the um the b being pops and patty is in pops looking for lonnie and then you've got uh shades and tone speeding to what will ultimately be the scene of the uh shooting there so yeah it was unusual wow matt there's a musical number going on (laughs) and you know what it largely works. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you really get a sense of the, the, the parallel nature of all of this. And let's let's go back to the club here. Uh, Mariah mentioning to Stokes, this is not what past generations have fought for. And he talks about black martyrdom versus black money. And Mariah asks if he wants to be more than a criminal. So these kind of, these kind of, different polls here the, the the people who've come before you your options now and the legacy that you will leave yeah and as 
shades and tone are speeding up to the barber shop there. I love this detached angle that Theo Rossi's playing shades with. Uh, you know, we're going to wait for him to come outside, right? And uh, there's Pops giving, uh, giving Lonnie a haircut. Um, Luke comes in here and uh, explains what's gone on. And, um, you know, we're, we're back with Mariah where it's all about respect here. Uh, Cornell, however, pointing out that money outlasts respect at what cost though, she asks, as all of this is heading to a, to a fiery point. Uh, Chico suddenly comes out of the back room because there's no TV, Matt. Oh. With a bag of cash, Pete, and Tone if, lights the place up. If only somebody had given Chico, I don't know, a free month of Netflix. Think how Netflix <laughs> could have saved all these people's lives. Pops could still be there counseling, counseling the youth of the neighborhood. Pete, it's proof Netflix can save America. Um, save before, the world. but save the world. There you go. Before we dive on into this to this shooting here, just want to mention that uh this discussion between uh mariah and stokes um money trumps respect at what cost his retort is that when she finds out she should tell him and certainly a reminder that we have more than one chief baddie uh in this show but pete let's let's break down this 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 vicious uh slaying here tone approaching the building just lighting up the place uh, gleefully uh, unloading in there. And uh, Luke jumps for Lonnie as uh, Chico gets hit and Pops takes one to the neck. No! Yeah, it's the type of thing you're not sure when he gets hit that he's going to go. But as he's dying there, you're you're not surprised given, you know, it's it's almost the Lostian, you know, we're, we're going to fulfill the backstory on a character and then they got to go. Um, but, uh, he's, he's bleeding from the neck here as, uh, Luke shields Lonnie hit repeatedly, uh, telling him to, to stay down as, uh, Luke and Lonnie continue to fake their shades points out. They should have waited. They have the money they leave. Um, and, uh, with the sirens getting closer, pop, uh, says swear and you're like all right he's, he's gonna tell him swear swear to me you'll protect chico or whatever no swear jar i will i will always forward and he dies mike coulter here does an amazing job moving from sadness to rage it, the camera's on him it's an actor's moment um and and you sense it. You know that this, beyond the obvious kind of narrative potency, you can see in the performance that this has had and will have a profound effect on the character. Time passes. Luke is holding that swear jar. Lonnie has been reunited with his mom. And uh, Detective Knight surveys the scene sadly. This, by the way, Pete, we have a, a continuous shot going on here. Extras, featured players, series regulars. Camera keeps moving. It's an ambitious and encapsulating uh, camera move here that's almost deceptive by by, by how much it takes in. Um, and we have, story-wise, Luke saying that he's just fine. 
shielded Lonnie. He's just fine. Chico is alive. He's taken out on a gurney. He's uh, he's got the breathing tubes in, but he is alive um, with those holes in his T-shirt there. Of course, Misty doesn't quite believe what's gone on. Um, Scarf talks about how the traffic cam picked up the black Escalade, tracked it to Hunt's Point in the Bronx, which is actually right over the river there, Matt. Um, but it was torched. And then uh, that they've had eyes on Cottonmouth. He has not moved from the VIP section in the club. I'm going to call a little bit of shenanigans on the fact that it's pointed out that they've taken the car there and they've already torched it. And then they're back in the club in the next scene almost instantaneously. Uh, that ain't happening in any kind of New York traffic, let alone Harlem. Well, to be fair, we do have a passage of time from Pop's death to Luke holding the jar. Lonnie's mom is there. So, I mean, could that... I, I think in in that period of time that it takes not just the responding uh, patrol car, but also... EMS, and then the detectives get wind of it, and they come on over. Pete, you certainly know the geography of of New York better than I do. I'm just saying, story wise, I think they're they're offering. You know, does it take 20 minutes for for detectives Knight and Scarf to get there, or is it 35 because there's an accident, or they were on meal break, or I think there's just enough story wiggle room to kind of let the story wiggle through, if not the geography. It's certainly addressed. It just doesn't seem believable. But Shade's holding that backpack full of money. Mariah joins them in coming to the roof. And Shades again points out that they should have waited. But Tone says he made an executive decision. He lit that place up like the 4th of July. It was a real Django Candyland stuff, Matt. But and as he's saying this, we have uh, Stokes kind of non-committal, um, but the reaction shots from Mariah and Shades show the tone is in trouble way before the story does. Uh, Stokes takes solace in the idea that Pops can rebuild. All it'll take is just, you know, just uh, an anonymous donation. It'll be okay. Uh, Cottonmouth as the 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 architect here. He's he can he can see a way through. Then when he's told that Pops is dead, who's gonna who who's just gonna walk on up? It's Turk Barrett, baby. Yeah, wants to know where his money is. He's Turk Barrett, baby. Ain't no door been built can hold him back. And uh, it's just then. That rather than turning on him, which, come on, you can't. He's Turk Barrett. Um, Cottonmouth, who doesn't want to be called Cottonmouth, despite Tone just having called him Cottonmouth, viciously throws him off the building and tells Turk Barrett that their business is heretofore concluded. He can collect his money downstairs. Matt, he's going back to Hell's Kitchen where it's safe. <sighs> Love the Turk Barrett stuff, obviously. The notion that Hell's Kitchen, hey, it's got like two powered people. The, the, the papers mention one. There's rumors of another. I'm going back there. It's a lot easier to get, get beat up by Daredevil. At least you know it. Uh, at least you know where the, uh, the end of the line is there. 
Turk Barrett, who the last time we saw him was fairly seriously injured in the leg. Pete, he's Turk Barrett. Okay, he might have he might have inhuman healing ability. Even if he doesn't, you know what? He's he is nobody's nobody's getting one over on him. More importantly, though, Pete is the technical finesse with which you get an unbroken, apparently steady cam shot of uh, Tone getting grabbed and thrown off the roof. Just a stunning, I mean, look, we could see coming from a mile away that Tone was not leaving that scene, that that was going to be, it's a wrap for the actor, everybody, you know. But the way it was done and the fact that it was done apparently with throwing the guy off the roof in one take, which we know was probably not the case. That was masterful. Yeah, it was, it was brutal too. And Mariah is not good with it. Uh, the extortion she's better with, but the murder, no, they get her out the side exit here. Shades is sorry about pop. He knows what he meant to, uh, Stokes and, uh, there's supposed to be rules. Um, Stokes points out here and it's just then that we have scarf and uh knight having a drink on the side of the car there um she is sure at this point that luke cage must have gotten hit there were bullet holes all in his shirt and then there's luke matt with the swear jar the new harlem renaissance flyer stokes is crying over the photo of uh pop and uh, we're back to where we began at the beginning of the episode with a man on a hill. The gun is once again to Cage's head as he's uh, looking at the Crispus Attics building. And uh, now in context, we can better understand Luke's rage. Yes, I remember what you said at the top of the podcast, Pete, where upon first viewing the top of the episode, he's sharing the rage from from the events of that episode but here it's it's clearly best placed and uh, he recounts to the young man that crispus addicts was the first man in this country the first man to stand up and he tells the young man to pull the trigger because he had got all night yeah a freed black man here he stepped up it's what pop did he didn't lay back in the cut like uh luke has to this point so he's not going to lay down anymore. Pull the trigger. Fine, he'll do it for him. And he pulls up his shirt. It's just great effect, Matt, firing the gun. And he's holding the slug in his fingers. Always forward, Pop. Forward always. But of course, Pete, before the episode wraps up, we got to set the table for next week, next episode, next next time you watch. What does Luke see? What's keeping him move always forward? He sees Mariah return to the Crispus Attic's building. She has that white and red backpack in hand, and he's quickly starting to put together the pieces. And he is, as you said, Pete, ready to move always forward. Pete, now we're going to talk about some bad... Shut your mouth. We're just talking about the bad guys. Pete, who are we starting with? Let's start with this unnamed assailant that holds the gun to Luke Cage's head at the beginning and end of the episode, Matt. 
I I don't know in my spoiler-free existence, although I did read something I wish I didn't about the next episode, but we'll we'll get there when we get there. Uh, I don't know if this young man returns, but I think that his presence is so key. I see in him the 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 plight, the anger that uh, that we as a society are, are trying to understand in in men like him, whether it's black, white, uh, inner city, whatever it might be. Just this, the, the, there's there's a dullness to him. And I don't mean that in terms of his intelligence, but he's. He's been worn down by the world despite his uh, his few years on it. And and there's a desperation there and a lack of, of context there and, and a sadness there. Yeah. And at the same time, to be presented with somebody like Luke, who at a really low point of the time that we've known him, um, you know, having just used this racial epithet and you know there's the whole logic of you're in the group you can use the word you're not in the group you can't that aside it's pushing his button put pushing luke's button by you know not holding the gun to his head but by using the word Pete, let's talk a little bit about shades here he surprisingly after his kind of shark-like appearance last episode he is the voice of restraint he is the voice of uh of the two sides in that he's representing uh the the you know this other as of yet unseen operation uh and and cottonmouth um he's representing not an escalation but a de-escalation he's representing counsel and uh really quick to both say it wasn't me it wasn't me it wasn't me but he still is the guy who picks up the backpack at the end of the day because there's a job that needs to be done. Might be the the coolest character in the episode, just in the way that he's able to, you know, I suggested we wait. Just <laughs> we we know he reports to a higher power. He's not worried about Stokes here, um, yet he's able to empathize with him at the end of the episode over went on what went on with pop and yeah he knew pop a little bit as well um really really enjoying what theo rossi is bringing to this show thus far for a split second i had wondered if there was going to be some sort of reveal of oh he's got laser eyes or he wears the shades for some sort of power reason and again if that if that well whether it unfolds or not i have no idea i'm hashtag spoiler free but i love that the character apparently wears them for affect and wears them to just be the cool guy who wears shades because that's what he's known for so he continues to do it there's a real uh there's a playfulness to the character you know despite the fact that he's a thug and uh has blood on his hands matt Cottonmouth, but a different type of cottonmouth in this episode. It was all ambition in the pilot, but here we get some some real gray notes out of him, particularly in the sorrow he feels for uh, Pop. He he references uh, how there are supposed to be rules, and the notion that here he is 
the uh, the dungeon master, if you will, to make a reference to another uh, Netflix show, but he can't get get the game to be played by those rules. I mean, there's a powerlessness there that that certainly the episode touches on with his tears at the end. But the idea that he fancies himself to be a Fisk, to be a big time player, and he's building that empire, but unlike Fisk. Um, it's not working. There's something kind of compelling there about trying and failing versus the, the highest heights where, where Fisk was this, you know, no one would say his name. With this, it's like Cottonmouth can't make it all work. And there's something there's something relatable there. Yeah. And, you know, given where he takes it by the end of this episode, uh, you know, in throwing an underling off of his building and then taking out the trash after that all to protect his uh, cousin who's in deep with the corruption here. Pete penultimately we have Mariah Dillard who, uh, who closes out the episode red and white handed with that bag. Oh, cash Pete we're two episodes in and at least for, for Luke cage, he's starting to put the pieces together. Can the NYPD be far behind? Listen, you know the way that this will ultimately go in terms of the corruption and, you know, uh, earlier Cottonmouth mentioned, uh, you know, about them being family and that always comes first. Yeah. Okay. Um, but Alfrey Woodard just plays this with such a plum, the way that, you know, she's, she's maneuvering the political side of it and talking about uh, her cousin Cornell, you know, channeling his ambition a little bit better, less with the money, where is the irony that she needs the money back from him? Part of what's so compelling about her as a villain is that that she is as much a victim of uh, both uh, both her cousin and herself, just as just as uh, Cottonmouth is a victim to her, like they're kind of, you know, the, the, they're they're the snakes eating each other's tail, and they need to stop this self destructive cycle here in order for both of them to succeed. But for both of them to succeed, they need the other one to follow through on what they said. So uh, there's. It's nice after the two previous Netflix shows that had the one clear bad guy. It's nice having the duality here. Um, and as we said with last episode, to have the timeliness of uh, questionable politician and questionable business owner and somebody who's flirting with crime for hopefully the right reason or flirting with crime to go deeper into crime. Um there's something so authentic about that. Lastly, Matt, we get to tone, um, having taken the most ruthless action in this episode, it's fitting that, uh, he loses his life, but, uh, boy, if he didn't relish there in, uh, going and, uh, thinking that he had killed Chico and he doesn't even do that. He uh, he was so proud of making that executive decision. Uh, I guess what he didn't count on was that the executive elevator can go uh, both up and down. 
Big Picture, where we break down theories about the road ahead. Pete, where shall we begin? Let's start with the swear jar, Matt. What is the importance? Pop's dying words. Swear jar. Not swear to me, you know, you'll raise the boy as a Jedi or something like that. But swear jar. Matt, swear to me, what's in the swear jar? Well, I don't know. I don't read ahead except for that thing I wish I didn't see that's going to be in the next episode (laughs) I watch. But... I don't know anything about the swear jar. It definitely is. It clearly is more than hold on to the swear jar. And each time you cuss, use this as a reminder to not cuss. There's going to be some, some MacGuffin in there. That's going to be, uh, be, be a driver for the story. Um, Pete, I know that it's kind of, there's a few layers to the swear jar. There's kind of the outer label. There's, there's, seems to be paper beneath it so i bet that bad boy is going to get cracked open pretty soon in the next episode and we'll get some kind of answer matt um the marvel cinematic film universe has of course uh loki has tom hiddleston you know shown up in in several movies here not the big bad but somebody who who chews the scenery and is a fan favorite clearly Clearly, um, Rob Morgan's Turk Barrett is currently the Loki of Marvel TV. And there's really not any other way to look at it. Um, Will he show up in Iron Fist? Will he be teaming with our antagonist in the Defenders miniseries and take on all four of these street level heroes, Matt, as a street level, he's not a thug. He he's got a name as a as a street level antagonist. The character of Turk Barrett was highlighted, obviously, in the first season of uh, of Daredevil, a bit less prominently pointed to in Jessica Jones. It kind of wasn't the big "Hey, it's Turk Barrett" moment. Um, back again for daredevil season two now it's a trend pete now i I mean there's no question he has to be in iron fist i would love uh particularly if we get the impression from this episode i'm going back to hell's kitchen okay that's probably it for him i'd love when, when iron fist comes out you know that he's like you know, I'm so glad I just got my uh my piano tuner license i'm turning life around and then you know an iron fist fight breaks out the piano gets smashed and he gets blamed he's like oh well back to my old ways you know (laughs) i'd love to just check in with this guy almost as a parallel story but but jokes aside although i really would love that the fact that they they use him here in a place that makes sense you need somebody to kind of be the insider to rat back into the the cotton mouth machine and the fact that it's a friendly face and you feel bad for the guy. I mean, yeah, he he rats rats out on Chico and whatnot. Pete, he should have gotten paid. Somebody should have paid him. Somebody should have paid him. You always pay Turk Barrett. Word on the street where we hear from you, the listener, Pete, first up an email from James Paul Rollins, who uh, who uh, says as follows. 
The Luke Cage premiere episode both uses the N-word and has some discussion about its appropriateness. I'm curious why you haven't had a discussion about it on the podcast yet. All the best, JPR. So Pete, certainly a, a big question, a serious question. Uh, where do we begin? Because this is certainly, uh, this is certainly a, a, a big topic. I mean, listen, we're, we're talking about a word that it, at the time of human history we're in right now, it's amazing, Matt, we're how many years past the civil rights movement and it just feels like we've slipped far back so much. And it's just a word, but it's the hate behind it. And it is so hateful. I mentioned earlier in the podcast, there's the old, if you're in the group, you can use the word, but if you're outside of it, how dare you? And even then, the the dignity that Mike Coulter's Luke Cage here shows, particularly towards the end of the episode, when we see that scene uncut, um, it, it's it's not our word to use, and it, it sends shivers down your spine when you hear it. It's just it's cringeworthy. Yes, the verisimilitude is there, and and. You know, I can't speak for Matt. I listen to enough, um, you know, rap music that I that I hear it. I won't say the word. Uh, I mean, all I can do is echo you, Pete. That that it's it's it, <laughs> we can certainly bring many perspectives, but uh, but we cannot bring a perspective in which our use of the word uh, is appropriate. And I think best of all is to let the show speak for itself and to let the title character, the hero of the show, who is who is the one uh, counseling those around him uh, to, to, to be mindful of the word's history in an episode, which, by the way, is about, at least to a certain degree, to a large degree, is about respecting history and knowing where things come from, whether it's your nickname, Pops, Cottonmouth, whatever it might be. Um, appreciating the respect of elders in the neighborhood and things of that sort. So I think uh, certainly thank JPR for his continued uh, listenership and, and for the email. And uh, yeah, I think uh, I think the episode speaks for itself on that. Pete, what do you have over there? Maybe something to something to uh, to lighten the mood a little bit. Well, Matt, the sentiment that I expressed in our previous big picture segment there about um, Rob Morgan's Turk Barrett possibly becoming a Loki here of the Marvel TV universe. I, I felt the need to, to tweet this and just draw a, a bigger connection here. And I, I wrote at uh, uh, Shadow Flack, which is Rob Morgan's Twitter. Get on there and follow him at Shadow Flack, F-L-A-C-K, all one word. I said, if Rosario Dawson is the Phil Coulson of the Marvel TV universe, could at Shadow Flax Turk Barrett, please be its Loki. Hashtag Luke Cage. Hashtag Daredevil. To wit, he responded to myself and Rosario Dawson. Love your enthusiasm and vision. I'd be Rosario's sidekick in real life, even. A uh, couple of emoticons there, emojis. Thank you for the support. So, you know, that Rob Morgan, he's, he's shown up in every um, Marvel Netflix show to date. He's on this... Um, you know, this niche kind of, uh, you know, nostalgic 80s show uh, with a monster and a couple kids. You may have heard of it. Um, 
Matt didn't even realize he was in that show until I had to point that out yesterday. So this is a guy who's going places. And uh, Matt, I for one hope it's the long game here that uh, he's he's going to continue to hold this uh, this piece together as as the bad guy, the underling bad guy that we uh, we love to hate and hate to love certainly a charismatic actor and it speaks to his skill that, uh, that he can be a cop in stranger things and uh on the other side of the law in these uh, marvel shows and uh just <laughs> such an entertaining presence it's such a it's such a a low-key character no pun intended there um but but uh tons of energy there from uh, rob morgan with that, Pete, let's talk the highest energy Twitter account out there. Let's talk yours. How can people be in touch with you on the Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 8,425 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter is looking back lost, you can be in touch with the podcast in a whole variety of ways under Fantastic Geek. That's fantastic with the P and the H. And uh, we're under that name on the Gmail, the dot com, the Twitter, the Instagram. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com forward slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word. Become part of our neighborhood and like us today. Well, Pete, we will be back in just a, a couple of days to keep talking with Luke Cage. Again, a reminder to our listeners, if you're listening to this as it drops, hope to see you at New York Comic Con, so certainly uh, tweet at us. Hopefully we can meet up, say hello. Had some great interactions last year with uh, listeners and non-listeners alike, if you can imagine some people choosing not to listen. But, Pete, that brings us to the end of the road for this episode, so I will say goodbye to all our listeners and give you the final word. Going back to Hell's Kitchen, Satan.